So many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails a feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stop talking and just stare at the radio. It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it, I love that song so much. Box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. Well, hello there. Yes, you are listening to Out of the Box. But up until now, you've been listening to Alex Pye, who's been taking care of you for the past three hours with some hella good tunes and you can check them all out on the programs and playlists page and on out of the box today i'm actually really excited i usually am excited but i'm actually really excited to have jamie leonardo on the show and you may know of him as jay Katz. he used to have a show on fbi called the naked city and uh it was a corker of a show very countercultural, more underground kind of stuff and uh, you might also know him as the founding member of Moo Meesons, and he also had the Moo Meeson Archives, which is a, a film night that had lots of really strange old B-movies and whatnot. Anyway, there's so much to talk about in the hour. I'll just throw straight over to you. Hello, Jamie oh, look, Leonardo. It is a pleasure to be here with you, and thank you so much for the opportunity to be on such a profound program. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Mapping your life as a uh, journey of music. It must have been really hard to boil down all it of the songs. It was one of the most difficult tasks I've so ever had to do. Sorry. And I think, you know, the point of fact is, you know, if you've grown up with music affecting you and that profound nature that what it can deliver emotionally, you become so attached to virtually everything that you've heard. Oh, dear. Well, I mean, I've basically tortured you for this long, so I better get going with the music then. Otherwise, well, we won't have time. Well, that was very kind torture. <laughs> I really enjoyed that torture. Well, let's let's just talk real quick about what your show used to be like on FBI. So, The Naked City. Well, it was like a live variety show, I think, The Naked City. It was quite topical. You know, we sort of trawled through the news that happened weekly. We had what uh, has been termed the voice of unreason by 3D World, <laughs> and that was my wife, Miss Death Aspasia. We also had Coffin Ed, who's been a partner of crime for mine for many decades. He does the trivia up there on the Dalo Bar with me every Wednesday night. And, you know, our thing was just to get everyone on the air that we could and uh, turn it into a mismatch. In many ways, you know, we just deconstructed radio. I'm not sure whether it was a truly positive thing, but we truly, <laughs> we absolutely missed the Naked City. I think FBI was the station we all needed in Sydney. It still does astounding things. And uh, the Naked City still goes on as a column in the City Weekly. It's out there electronically, and we need to get back to that. You know, I had a period there where I got up onto uh, nationwide television, but in retrospect, more people are interested in my career on FBI and the Naked City than anything else. Interesting. I guess you really struck a nerve. And I guess, you know, with FBI, you're saying it was the station that everyone needed, that Sydney needed. Mm. So you were actually quite instrumental in making it uh, I was involved start. in 15 years of the test. Now, this is wow. the absolute <laughs> tragedy and sadness because after 15 years... It was given for a youth licence and I was an old man. I was a middle-aged man by oh, the time no. we got to that licence. But uh, still, 
they were a most I, I have some incredible memories of some of those tests for FBI especially the one at Bondi Beach where one morning we were looking out of the portable sort of caravan type uh, studio we had there into the water as someone came out of the water I didn't see them go in wearing no clothing and ran towards the studio and then jumped in the door and onto our laps when we're on live on air. Now that was just so unpredictable. <laughs> that was just astounding. You were just going for a swim. But uh, you know, you we've up. always needed a triple R in Sydney, and we've yeah. got it. And FBI ha- is is more solid and strong than it's ever been. It's a profound station, and I think, like all good things, the naked c- city has to change. It's the only thing we can predict. It's out there as a column, but get ready for a podcast any moment soon. Oh, that is really exciting and really good to hear. What is also good to hear is Min Idol, and he bought a track and buy them today to start off off the show. So, why why this one? Well, this track really affected me. I, you know, I was in conflict as you were saying before. I was thinking I should be playing the Thor Criminals and all these other bands that were alive at the time, but this track affected me because I think what Peter Garrett and the boys are singing about is being an outsider in Sydney in the late seventies. And uh, they actually used the pastiche of what it was like to be sitting on Town Hall Station at three in the morning. It was no different to being at Town Hall Station in three in the afternoon when it was full of people. You still felt outside of the system. So let's hear from Dust from the very first Midnight Oil album, 1978. Oh, come on, you're so sweet. 
FBI 94.5, and that track was brought in by my guest today, Jamie Leonardo. That was Dust from the uh, self-titled Midnight Oil album, the very first album on Powderworks, 1978. And I think I was 20 years of age, and that really resonated with me. And it resonated because I can remember seeing Midnight Oil at the Kirk Gallery. It's still there near the corner of Crown and Cleveland Street. I think Madame Lash owns that now with about 40 people. But the place, Ash, that I saw them that was astounding was French's. It was the ultimate Sydney dive bar. Where was it? It was like, it was on Oxford Street. I think there's a soup bar house there now. And you go downstairs, it was like a scene out of Wild at Heart, the bar scene. It was just like freaky (laughs) and anything could happen to you in there. And I think I was there with like 30 people, 20 were staring at the ceiling and 10 were staring at the band. Now, Midnight Oil were... what were the 20 doing? (laughs) God knows. Uh, Midnight Oil were an odd band at that time because they didn't really fit in. They weren't so much new wave. They weren't punk. They were something else. They were great musicians that sort of exemplified what it was like to feel something strongly and passionately in Sydney and try and express it. Now, back then, the multitude of venues that let people express themselves freely was astounding. I mean, they weren't controlled by the uh, occupational health and safety rules that we've got running today. Because what decade decade are we talking about? Yeah, and they weren't as financially driven as Mm. venues appear today, and there, there wasn't this huge amount of franchise out there buying up venue after venue. Now, it's so odd because we were talking before about the Lansdowne, you know, the Herald yeah. yesterday, the Lansdowne's closing down. And that's where Miss Death and myself did a huge nightclub in the late 90s, The Sounds of Seduction. And it's really sad to see those venues disappearing because I think that if you are thinking outside of the square, you're driven by your heart, not so much your wallet. Where in the hell do you get to actually have that embryonic stage where you can grow? Totally. And it's everybody's first venue. I mean, a lot of people that I know started up bands and performed there first before anyone else will give them a go. Now, I'm very inspired by a couple of gentlemen that are linked to a huge franchise, Soul Cell, and that's um, Elliot Solman and Adam Blewett. They're amazing people, and they're having difficulty now with the King's Cross Hotel, which... uh, well, I know the FBI uh, did their social parties there and just prior to these lockout laws. There are three incredible rooms going to waste in that venue. There's an upstairs outside space that's just beautiful, a rooftop area. So if you're a theatre group out there, I'm sorry for this plug, but I just have to get it in. If you're people wanting to do an extraordinary little night, a vaudevillian night, please get in touch with the King's Cross Hotel and ask for Elliot because those rooms are going to waste. I can't believe how stigmatised people are. I mean, certainly there were some important issues there that needed to be addressed. But the 1.30 lockout, it's not extreme. You can still get around that. Lots of things on a weekday night should end if people have to get up and go to work prior to those darker hours. So, uh, you know, I think it's really important to seek out the right people in the right jobs in those venues to actually recreate a revolution in performance out there in the spaces that are still available before they all disappear and start being turned into accommodation, which is what's happening to the Lansdowne. Oh, gosh. It's, it's getting turned into a music school, I believe. All right, a music okay. college of some sort. Um, speaking of venues, though, you've got a, a vaguely newish venue, I think, in the shape of Go Rose, and you've got a night coming up there. Yeah, how do we be a regular spot. Is it Go Rose? 
Garros, Garros. Oh, you Garros know, I did SBS. I did the movie that. show for years. <laughs> My pronunciation is horrible. But uh, it's beautiful, this venue. It is like a Japanese street bar. Beautiful food. It's got a lot of arcade machines. I believe you went a bit crazy there recently in <laughs> one of the three karaoke rooms, uh, which is truly yeah. liberating. <laughs> and I'd like to spend uh, some time with you on the microphone in those karaoke rooms oh, in the future. Oh, it's a date. It is so a date. So I'm, we're actually commencing our first nightclub, regular nightclub in over a decade. It's going to be called Toho Nights, based on the Japanese theme of that bar. Now, Toho was the original production company for Godzilla. And if I can quickly state that Godzilla was so misinterpreted by the West, Godzilla was the children's monster that was aroused by their imaginations when they were threatened by something outside. And uh, we turned it into the West as the monster that was attacking everything. So let's go back to the original interpretation. And the idea there, believe it or not, and I hope it works, is to have one of the most broadest playlists. Do you know how clubs clubs are so specific and genre-based? It's either hip-hop, it's soul, it's rock and roll, it's house music. As if people don't like a bit of all of the above. Absolutely. And I think that uh, all music affects this one way or another. And one thing I've noticed with my age, which is frightening, is just your appreciation of music becomes broader and broader and broader. Well, mine does, and I hope it does with everyone, the older you get, and you realise that there are gems in the genres that you might have been prejudiced against. We've got a song to take from SPK. Now, this was recorded on a four-track TIAC in a terrace house in Newtown in 1982 and was deemed one of the most innovative albums to ever be produced. The title of it is Lycanshry, and Graham Ravel... Behind SPK with the extraordinary Neil Hill, the late Neil Hill, has gone on to be one of the major soundtrack and score composers in Hollywood. He did Sin City. I think he did The Crow as well. And this track, well, there are no track listings on this album. Let's have a listen to it. At the same time as Einstein Neubarton, who were not aware of this, <laughs> were using um, metal as a percussive instrument. Chucking, so was SPK. Yeah. Nuts and bolts, here we go. On FBI 94.5, it's Jamie Leonardo on Out of the Box.
on FBI 94.5. I'm so sorry. That track ends so abruptly and I'd forgotten how it ends. No track listings, nothing. You are lost with that piece of vinyl, but my God, you were quick. Your reflexes are astounding. Cat-like. Well, that was a bit weird, that music there. It was a bit weird, but it was incredibly innovative. And I guess what you call that is industrial noise. Nice. Now, my dad was a ham radio operator, so from a very young age, I was hearing lots of white and pink noise. He was also a bit of a record bootlegger, and he met my mother when uh, my grandfather went to record a poem, and they were cutting it cheaply. So they went to my father, who had all the gear in like a flatette, and uh, sort of sitting on his bed was the studio equipment, and uh, my father did all the sound effects, recorded, and then cut the record across then and there for them. So I guess I've I've grown up where I, I was I was sort of affectionate about noise. So SPK really responded to me. But the other thing that SPK responded, Ashley, I'm sorry to this, I'm cutting you off. I'm out of control here, but <laughs> they were very interested in the notion of art brut, mm-hmm. outsider art, and art that had been uh, produced in institutions by people that were deemed mentally illiterate out there. I was just about to say while you're talking about your dad that he was also a bit of a bootlegger, wasn't he? Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he'd do things like he had people under the um, town hall, the security guards, he'd go and record the synth- Sydney Symphony Orchestra underneath the stage, so it must have sounded rather, rather muffled. And next week when they were performing, he'd be selling the 78s on the stairs of the town hall. <laughs> what a guy. So a real inspiration to me. He's gone. I miss my dear Arthur, but I'm sure he's around me right at the moment. We're about to uh, go into some new territory. Been to your earlier life when you were when you're starting out in nursing, mm. and you met your wife through nursing. She was a therapist, a diversional yeah. therapist, and she was the most radical diversional therapist I'd ever come across. Her heart was extraordinary. She was working with very heavily institutionalised, developmentally disabled, people who'd been downsized from Pete Island and brought back into the community. And just something about who she was. I mean, 25 years I've been with my wife, five years before we ended up in a relationship. Today, I respect her even more than when I first met her. She has been my inspiration, my driving force. And, you know, just looking at who's behind this program and seeing the strength in the ladies in this building, I always think, you know, men are pathetic in comparison (laughs) to the female of the species because they are the ones that really put us on the map. Well, why thank you, I guess. It's a pleasure. <laughs> and um, so, you know, being a divisional fe- therapist, your, as your wife was, you kind of, you know, as you were nursing as well, you were taking care of people who were mentally ill by and large, yeah? And that sort of became the basis of my band. I mean, I mm-hmm. said I was very inspired mm-hmm. by Graham's work because he was very interested in the art I was not just interested in the art, I was interested in the people and I found that those people had no power in our community. The only power I could give them on the level that I was operating was amplification. It was the mid-80s in Sydney, everyone was trying to be freaky and I never wanted it to stand on the stage and be a three-ring circus of insanity. And so I made sure that people were okay, they weren't too psychotic or too ill and I wanted this experience to be empowering confidence building and also completely abstract. So the Moon Meesons had quite a few members, anywhere from five to 20 members at a given exactly. time. But how oh, do you... God, you've done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> how do you make sure that 
you know, up to 20 people at a time get to actually have creative input, actually get to, you know, be contributing to the music constructively in a, in a way that makes them feel like they're expressing themselves. How do you, you do that? You don't give them any restrictions. None? You just, I can remember in the height of regurgitator uh, Beatlemania, a gig at the Metro we did where I thought this might be our only opportunity. And the reason why we did that gig was their support band for Regurgitator was the Japanese band The Boredoms, and The Boredoms loved us. So uh, I thought they may never get this opportunity to be in front of over a 1,000 people again. I'm just going to get everyone I know. And the band that night was nearly 30 people. <laughs> and there was even wow. a in, photographer in not playing an instrument that just walked on stage photographing a 70-year-old Chinese man just roaming around whilst we were performing. So it's just not putting restrictions on people and hoping that somewhere in there there is a really beautiful accident that we can perceive and run with. I didn't want it to be seen as a jam session or a shambolic mess. And so I always had a couple of good musicians driving it, but also thought that the accident is more profound than what we can ever conceive. I think it's kind of interesting that you had so many people with mental, you know, mainly people with mental illnesses in the band, but I kind of feel like that doesn't really happen very much. But then again, we know there's a lot of crossover between mental illness and creativity. There certainly is. I mean, there are so many bands we could talk about, the lead singers actually pushing that band to the forefront of culture and then finding out later on that that lead singer is suffering from bipolar disorder or some form of schizophrenia. It's what's given the band that edge. And uh, it also could be what ends that band in a very tragic way. I think people need support. You know, the mentally ill, if we just go back a couple of centuries, they weren't perceived as the mentally ill. They were perceived as the shamans, the ones in touch with the gods. Now what we've done is we've sedated them, tranquilised them, put a Band-Aid over their disorder and pushed them into isolation. I know you have some pretty, you know, strong feelings about tranquilization of people mm. who are mentally ill. What what is the problem there with actually tranquilizing people who are mentally ill? I think the problem is it is it doesn't resolve the issue. It actually makes them a bit more socially malleable, but it doesn't really get to the heart of the problem. And I think the way things are going these days, that mental illness, that that medication is not monitored to the extent it should be and reduced to its lowest level. I mean, sometimes it's absolutely necessary. But when you're seeing teenagers on oil-based tranquilizers like Monocate and nothing is done to actually perceive their progress or reduce that level, in the end, the drug starts to make inroads into their brain psychopathy and starts to create a whole myriad of new problems that weren't there in the first place. So that's with oil-based tranquilizers, mm. then? And that's with a lot of tranquilizers on the market. Now, my thing was that, you know, these people could not even turn their Casio on in their nursing home because they were playing discordant notes. I just wanted to embrace those discordant notes and give them more amplification that was coming out of the plastic battery-operated Casio and take them into the live arena, and we did. And I saw things like what was supposed to be permanent side effects to that medication dissipate when they were performing there is something astounding about music I mean if you have a stroke it's much easier for you to sing before you'll be able to speak and so medically physiologically they still don't understand how music can affect both sides of the brain both hemispheres and uh, you know speech is relegated to certain levels so I mean 
Come on, people, let's unleash the force of nature. Let's keep an eye on each other to make sure we're okay. And let's give the world amplification. As you were saying before, everyone should be at least doing karaoke at the top of their lungs. <laughs> Yeah, I guess we have very much kind of, there are musicians and then there are other people. This is, Excuse you know, you the see mic the, business there. <laughs> <laughs> you're sounding so resonant now, I'll turn it down a little bit. Um, yeah, so you have musicians, you have, you know, music as an elective and you take up music as a as maybe a hobby and it's kind of, you have to be a certain person to be a musician and then there's a conservatorium of music. It's very much, this is for a certain stream of people, but I guess it's really important to everyone. Musical therapy. very important yeah. to everyone. Awesome. Well, let's take a track. And uh, I think this is a bit of musical therapy for sure. Please introduce our next song. Oh, look, this is from one of the strongest women to ever hit the musical scene, Nina Hagen. You listen out of the box on FBI with Jay Katz, my guest today, a.k.a. Jamie Leonardo. I don't know what to think. (laughs) That was the best song of all time, brought in by my guest today. I think it's a dance floor hopper. It really is. uh, (laughs) Does it kind of of actually have the vibe of the Moo Mison shows going on? There's a little bit of Moo Mison in there. I mean, that's a beautiful thing to say. I don't think we've ever reached the heights of Nina Hagen, (laughs) and I I don't know if anyone could. And Nina had a moment in life like I had, but she's taken it even further. She had an extraordinary anomalous experience, and she's had direct UFO communication. I've had a major sighting with about 500 people at my school that really changed my life and made me perceive this reality a bit differently. And I can't, again, like mental illness, 
Ash, the one thing that really upsets me about that stuff is how much it is ridiculed in mainstream culture. Now, I'm just going to move this mic. Excuse me. It keeps <laughs> sliding down. Uh, uh, by the way, while you're listening, maybe just, you know, donate to FBI so we can get some better mic stands so they don't fall down <laughs> while someone's trying to speak into them. Yeah. Uh, become a supporter of this fine station. It's really easy. Just go to our website from as little as $10 a month. You can become a supporter and pretty much you make that back in cool, free stuff like gigs and CDs. I think anyway. it's really important, even just from the perspective of this show alone. Well, you heard him. <laughs> Off you go to the to the website. Anyway, so that was Nina Hagen and we're taking down all of the uh, all of the names of the songs and artists on the FBI website on the out of the box programs and playlist page. Now, um, I kind of just wanted to bring up a little a little day festival at uh, Max's Petersham featuring, you know, members of the Moo Meesons. Um, can you tell us a bit about the, the 40 support acts you had one day? Well, you know, that's, again, you've done your homework. You know, Max's Petersham was incredible in the late 80s and it really was the testing ground for people like Tex Perkins and so many other bands. I mean, that's where the Cruel Sea came together and Tex became associated with that band. And so the guy that was running that venue was very open to things that were very different. We did our biggest shows there and we would pack it. We'd be turning people away from the door I think it had like a five to six hundred capacity in the back room and it's sad to see that that is a shadow of itself these days so Black Eye Records that were doing incredible stuff run out of Red Eye Records at that stage and again a big call out to independent record stores out there the Radio Free Alice the records uh, store Stefan running it vintage records those people are doing an extraordinary job in keeping that culture alive it's really important and I was speaking to Mike Patton who's a close friend being a bit sick of foundation and name dropping there Ash that you know Mike the Patton records for... that product Mike Patton from Faith No More yeah. uh, that 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 product that art still exists in music that it just doesn't become a terabyte hard drive and everything looks the same it needs to be still a package of art and so you know uh, Max's Petersham Hotel yeah 40 we used to do these things called pure mesonite and I would just get as many support acts as I could which sort of condensed the Mison's performance time sometimes down to about 20 minutes at the very end of the night where everyone was just smashed completely <laughs> and uh, I can remember getting a ukulele player from uh, one of the nursing homes and I had to drive him back in the middle of the gig to get him home safely he was in his 80s and he was our opening act and I just wanted to give everyone a chance to get out there and fill an audience that didn't get that opportunity Awesome well, I guess, speaking of Mike Patton, as you were a second ago, he was a big fan of Mumisons, so we might take a track from him. Now, how did how did Mike Patton find out about you guys? Well, we were bootlegged. We were bootlegged. Here we go, going back to the legacy didn't of my recordings. father. Yeah, so we had videotapes that went out there and proliferated. I believe in Osaka, they actually made mugs out of our images off these videotapes. So, that uh, is so cool. And, <laughs> uh, you know, our whole thing was to never really release anything but to be seen live, that was how it was meant to be experienced. Well, you know, people were videoing things and we wouldn't stop them and that was great. Patton saw some of the videotapes, heard some of the music and was always fascinated. 
And he also shares a very broad love of music. Now, people that have followed Mike Patton are well aware of his obsession with Italian score maestro Ennio Morricone, Italian music. And this is from, uh, the track we're going to hear is from Mondo Khan. There's going to be a Mondo Khan 2 very soon, I believe. Mm. And that's reworking all those scores and all that pop music out of Italy in the 60s so beautifully. And here is the theme from an astounding film. If you've never seen it, you've got to see it. Danger Diabolic. He was the Italian anti-hero. He would do things like blow up the tax department just for the fun of it. (laughs) And he, he has been like a major comic book hero in Italy for like five decades. And this is the theme from the one and only film by the extraordinary director Mario Bava, Danger Diabolic.
That's Mike Patton on your radio. Brought in by my guest today, Jay Katz or Jamie Leonardo. My name's Ash Bertabez and what a gem it was. And that's actually called, I must correct myself there, Ash, so please excuse me and listeners, that's called Deep Down. But it is the theme from the extraordinary Danger Diabolic. And you can, I mean, the Diabolic comics are still being produced today. I think on Adult Swim there was even commissioned a sort of crossover with Italy for a cartoon series. But again, an anti-hero and uh, the sort of thief that we all need. Someone who Mm. was thinking of the greater community good than just themselves. And you are you are very into film, so I understand why that uh, track particularly sings to you because you do have the Moomies on Archives, which is, I guess, well, you're probably better at explaining this than I am, but Alex Pye, who does The Morning Show, was speaking about it before very fondly that you just rock up to your place and you'd be spinning some really old, weird B films. Well, you used to. I mean, unfortunately, you know, for 14 years we actually were doing that and it was just opening up our space to the community. I mean, I think we're collectors. We've got one foot in that camp and one foot out. We just don't want to turn our stuff into the symbolism of our insecurity. We want it to not be just collecting dust. We want to get it out to the community and share it with people. And, I mean, when I look around, Ash, you know, I don't own a home. I'm still renting. There's no retirement plan. The only thing I've poured my life into are all those peripheral apocrypha that comes with culture, records, films, albums. And I think I was always obsessed of trying to put together a sort of library of things that weren't contained in other libraries. Mm. So it wasn't just films. I'm really into the notion of... um, failure in creativity because I think failure just shows the truth about who we all are so I like really failed and flawed films I like sort of crazy failed and flawed music I like sort of peripheral writings that culture ridicules I like anything that's got a bit of eccentricity and imagination about it and you realize after a while my god the only chance at celebrity I've got left is one of those extreme reality shows, Hoarders Buried Alive. <laughs> of course, now we've got a warehouse and we're in a difficult situation because we want to move and create a big open community centre. I mean, my wife was running a knitting group there and they closed that down. What do they do with mm. Tupperware in the 21st century? Are they outlawed? The line that was fed to us from council was illegal human assembly. Wow, that sounds really diabolic. <laughs> a $90,000 fine was placed over our heads, so we had to remove everything we were doing from social media. But the Moomies on Archives will appear again someday. My wife is desperate to get Clover Moore of the City of Sydney to give her a building for a while where she can at least run her knitting groups. She wants to teach people her skills, something that she'd had there from childhood. My wife knits when she's reading. She knits when she's walking. Thank God she doesn't knit when she's driving, but when she's DJing, she does as well. (laughs) She cannot stop. So you're both hoarders. You, you both have a lot of a lot of old, cool, weird things. You're both basically assembling an informal museum, but that has actually been really useful to things like the ABC, for example. Yeah, we've given... God, you've done your homework. We have actually given back the ABC more lost TV shows than anyone in the country, and that's because my wife is willing to go into the world of the bitter male film collector, and they're all like <laughs> failed producers, failed screenwriters, failed actors but they've become collectors and it's a really difficult world for anyone to traverse. But we actually found there was a company called um, 
the Home Talkie Company on Cleveland Street. Now, that company's gone now, and in its demise, they must have been paying off someone on the truck that was going to the furnace to burn their copyrighted films because they had collected a wealth of lost television shows. Women's World, I think we got them back 50 episodes. They didn't have one. And it's a classic piece of early Australian TV. And, you know, it talks about when safety belts were coming in. Well, you wouldn't use them to just go down to the shop and get a bottle of milk. Why would you do that? It'd be silly to put your safety belt on. So all these incredible moments in culture that had disappeared we got back to its original source. I mean, no one does anything for altruistic reasons in the Western world, but I think we are a little bit like the Robin Hoods of lost film stock. So, um, yeah. I guess what do you think of minimalism then as a movement that's really quite prevalent You know, every time I see it, I think how beautiful this is because I feel like I'm in a scene from the original Dali and Bunuel film, The Andalusian Dog, where I'm dragging the sins of humanity on my back. Materialism can just only weigh you down, and all of us need to get out there, travel and experience things. But at the same time, I felt so outside of the system that, uh, you know, I wasn't good enough to get into arts college, but I still wanted to create. So what I had to do was build up my resources around me. I couldn't go down to the arts college to hire a camera, so I had to work for a year to buy a camera. And then that camera might fail. So I got very excited in the late 80s when all those things were becoming obsolete so quickly that I could actually grab all the products people were throwing out. It's a bit like my synthesizer collection. You know, in the the mid-80s, no one gave a damn about those instruments. Now they're worth tens of thousands of dollars. You're sounding a lot like a previous guest of ours, Pia Van Gelder, who was on two weeks ago, (laughs) who's a media archaeologist and keeps all of these weird old trinkets. You guys should just have a a field day together with all of your weird stuff. We should. I'd love to... uh, (laughs) Get, get me in touch with him. But, uh, you know, we've got Betamax machines. Yeah. I still screen laser discs. I mean, laser discs. <laughs> you know, all this stuff too, Ash, is very diabolical in terms of landfill. So if we can't reuse it as, in its original purpose, its original media, we need to do something with it. I mean, my wife started constructing handbags out of laser discs, and they're gorgeous things, until I told her to stop when we got to the Criterium collection because I wanted to keep some of the extras that are not coming out on Blu-ray or DVD. But, uh, you know, I still screen those things because I don't believe in any lost format. I've got a wire recorder at home, and so you would record onto a piece of wire and it's it's still it still works it gives you inadvertently its fault line was that it actually gives you a bit of flanging because the wire would twist but it's a very interesting sound in retrospect nothing's lost nothing should be stopped it's the kind of artifact that people try to replicate today sonically anyway so it's kind of you've got the original and look what's happened with this resurgence in vinyl Mm. people have realized that you know some of these formats shouldn't be brought to an end just for convenience that we still need to be able and that's what we're going to do in Toho Nights we're going to be very predominantly vinyl based people walk in now with a tablet or a memory stick we're going to have all the hard stuff there. The stuff that in my late 50s gives you a hernia on the way to the venue. BYO trolley. Yeah. I reckon it's time for a song. What do you think? I think so as well. How are you feeling about Mayor Hawthorne? Let's do Mayor Hawthorne. I've just noticed that he's out here on the 26th of September at the Jam Factory. 
nice. And this guy is just another intuitive. Never believed he was good enough to make a record in his life. One of his first hits, he's so repentant that he didn't put a bridge in that song. <laughs> but this is a beautiful tune from his first album, and it's called The Ills of the World, and I think lyrically it says so much. Jamie Leonardo, a.k.a. Jay Katz on your radio. It's out of the box. My name's Ash Berterbez, and here you go. It's Mayor Hawthorne. FBI 94.5, that was Mayor Hawthorne, brought in by my guest today, Jamie Leonardo, a.k.a. Jay Katz, which you might remember from The Naked City on FBI. Someone did just ring in to ask, how can I find those old shows? They really want to listen back to it. So maybe we're thinking a podcast might be in order. What do you reckon, Jay? I think you're right there. And I just lyrically, that song always gets me because the ills of the world may get you down, but then all of us. You've just got to get back up and get going because there's so much exciting stuff to be had in this life of ours. Look, 
The Naked City still is out there electronically on media and in City Weekly every week. Coffin Ed, to tell you the truth, is the one that pens that. He is the greatest wordsmith. Our names are on there, but we're vacant and absent sometimes from the writing of it. <laughs> he does such a wonderful job. He used to be Dr. Vern Paulin, which was across a lot of street press on the street and all that sort of stuff. Very satirical in his writing. But there is a podcast we're doing at the moment, and we will be kicking up in the future a Naked City podcast. But I love the name of this podcast. Mm. What Double J Should Sound Like. <laughs> now, it sounds so provocative. And, you know, as we were speaking before, Ash, you know, when you feel a little disempowered in culture, well, the only thing you can do is grab that wooden pole and start prodding at things. <laughs> and uh, initially when we heard they were going to Digital Double J, it's not so much that we're railing on what they're doing there. It's just that we realise, my God... We have so much material from that period. We were so inspired by the short-lived history of only a couple of years of how radical that station was, how it pushed culture, that uh, we thought, well, we're going to play what Double J inspired us to have in our collection. And with an incredible man, Camel Drummond, who's going under the moniker of Crooked Mouth, he'll be live in Toho Nights tonight with some great music he recorded in Japan. He said, look, I'm going to rush and grab that domain name. I'm going to set up a website and let's do a podcast. 60 podcasts later, here we are. Wow. 60 podcasts Sis- only since Double J started. Yes. So, you guys are prolific. <laughs> we're a little later after Double J started, but you know what? You can go up onto Mixcloud or you can just simply punch it in. Because we brought those domain names, I think we come up just underneath the official Double J. And, uh, you know, we've got T-shirts on there. We've got a whole myriad of funny things happening. And, uh, you know, it's just basically to make sure that that material we've got in our archive just doesn't become a dust collector. Mm. And you realise, too, the amount of independent music that was breaking free, the cassette revolution, home recording, all that stuff was just beginning. And for the first time, people realised that they didn't have to tie their life away to some corporation that they could produce music in their living room and get it out there. And Double J was the pioneer of that, along with uh, a station that I worked on early in the piece in the Midnight to Dawn Collective, 2MBS FM in Sydney. And uh, we were the first pioneers of playing cassettes on air. And that was really important because people could actually now, for very little money... Um, you know, I used to write to this publication, Cassette Gazette. I can remember releasing 30 cassettes, but I told people that they were international because 10 of them went overseas and two of them were reviewed in Cassette Gazette. <laughs> so even though you didn't have much money, you really felt you were off top of your game. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a huge uh, radio fan, audiophile in general. What's so special about radio in your mind? Radio still to me is probably the most powerful medium you could ever come across because what it does you know television I've always thought programming I am highly suspicious of that word it is programming you you know all of us turn into a bit of a trance state when we're watching TV we forget the room and the space we're in we link to that screen it's a bit like the computer screen radio evokes our imagination to start creating pictures in our mind and thoughts radio actually is an assister in the growth of people's creativity. And it also, neurologically, this is something I found out yesterday, if you, if I'm looking at you now and I then close my eyes and I try to picture exactly what you look like, the same neurons essentially are firing. Wow. So I'm basically 
it's seeing seeing you in my mind is actually just as uh, important an experience. And you know, my mother, um, my father's passed away, and my mother's suffering the first stages of Alzheimer's. And mm-hmm. you know, I think that we've got a culture where that's becoming far more predominant. And the biggest fear there is that you know it's a bit of nature and nurture. And the nurture is the working of that grey matter, the working so you don't get the plaque building up on the axons and the dendrites there. So I think that radio is something that assists us in becoming more intellectually and creatively involved. It evokes the imagination, whereas television, I think, is programming us into a trance-like state, a stupor, where we're highly suggestive and the products they're trying to sell at us, what's running underneath all that, is so much easier. We should not be consuming so much. We should be creating, and radio is the ultimate creative tool. Awesome. And I guess with TV also, I mean, you're being shown what you see. In, in order for your brain to catch up with what it's taking in, that's basically your experience that in real time. You can't actually, you can't actually imagine that yeah. at all. I mean, imagery is so sophisticated now. It is so fast-paced. It mm-hmm. is so full of razzle-dazzle. But really, it feels very hollow at times. Now, we shouldn't generalise, but you can't help but doing that, especially in a short format as this program. There is a problem there, and I still believe in radio. I will take radio to the grave with me and hopefully transmit from beyond there when I'm gone. <laughs> Look forward to hearing your shows from beyond. <laughs> well, um, it's interesting that you say that as well as a, as a film buff. You were on, uh, you know, Margaret and David. You were Margaret and David on SBS for a while along with Yeah, uh, I was never people. David. I could never <laughs> be David, nor could I be Margaret. And, you know, I really respect and appreciate those two. But I tell you what, after two years of being a film critic, I never, ever want to do it again. You don't seem a, like too much of a critic. I I've think got that's a problem with problem. criticism, really. Yeah. I, I think we should be building people's confidence. And if we need to actually sort of push them down a line that's going to assist them, we can do it without that notion. I think, you know, constructive criticism to me has always seemed like the ultimate oxymoron in the English language. Constructive criticism. I mm-hmm. see criticism always creating a deficit. A hollowness. You know, when my mispronunciation was really highlighted on SBS, it made me more afraid to articulate what I was feeling than what it was before when I was naive to it. It's like, I think everyone can experience that because it's like what you were saying before about watching films that were essentially flawed, they were failures, they had, they had really just naff elements that just didn't translate very well. When you see something like that, you go... I can make art. You see, art that you think, you know... Exactly. All of a sudden it opens that doorway to you Mm. that can seem so intimidating and mystifying. You realise, oh my God, if this person can do this, so can I. Yeah, you don't need to land on your feet at the top of the game. Uh, Yeah, and that is just totally liberating. And I think we're living in a culture now where everything seems so slick and perfect. Well, human beings aren't slick and perfect. They have flaws and we need to embrace and enjoy those flaws in each other. Well, it's been fantastic having a chat with you, Jamie Leonardo, a.k.a. Jay Katz. Well, it's been a real privilege and an honour to be on this show, and I think you do an extremely pro- professional job, and I think it's a really important show. If you agree, uh, we do actually have a podcast. You can always subscribe to Out of the Box through whatever podcast app is on your phone or just land right in there whenever we get the time to upload it. 
And I would really love to see as many people as possible appear tonight at our launch night. We've got Jeff Duff, Australia's own David Bowie. We've got Crooked Mouth coming up in the future. We've got Krista Hughes. It's going to be a very intimate venue, 84 to 86 Mary Street. Just out now where the old uh, trade union club used to be. And uh, I really look forward to seeing people, chatting with people and getting on the dance floor. You know what happens when I'm on the dance floor, Ash? One day we'll have a dance together. People just instantly go to triple O. They think I'm having a heart attack, but that's just the passion in my soul. <laughs> I look forward to experiencing it firsthand, Jamie Leonardo. Thank you so much for coming it's on Out of the pleasure. Box. Now, what's our last song? Our last song is a song of redemption. Lee Fields, who was a recording artist in the 60s and 70s, just like Craig Bradley on Daptone, was forgotten about for many decades, and now young, younger musicians. This is such a beautiful song. A beautifully recorded 2014 from the album Emma Jean. Check it out. It'll be part of the playlist at Toho Nights. Can't believe Note she left on the door Telling me She doesn't live here anymore I can't believe A whole lot of things are taking place I wish she'd come back messed up, man. My boy's coming over. All the furniture gone. No TV. What I'm gonna tell him? Hell, I think of something. But right now, I gotta share some tears.
Say, I'm gonna sit there and listen. 